How are you guys doing today? Good, good. It's great to be with you. Let there be light. Boom, I did it. My name is Eli Finley, and I'm the youth pastor here at Fellowship of the Rocks, and I just want to welcome you. I'm honored to be preaching and teaching for you this weekend as Pastor Charlie is gone. I'd like to start our time this morning by telling you a story. I grew up in a little town called Sanger, Texas, about 45 minutes north of Dallas. You probably think you've heard about it. You haven't. It's teeny tiny. Okay, and I grew up right next to a lake. About 25 minutes away from my house is a lake called Lake Ray Roberts, and it was a man-made lake. So it was really big and really deep for no reason at all. Everything is bigger in Texas, not always better, but it's definitely bigger in Texas, and it's because they have more space to fill. When me and my family moved here, I was about eight years old. We moved to Pueblo, Colorado. I love it here. Did elementary, middle, and high school here. Go dogs. Uh, love this place. Love living here. Love being here. Love serving here. I love it. I feel like I get to claim this place now. I'm no longer really a Texan anymore. Praise the name of Jesus. And so what we would do for family vacations generally is drive back to Texas. Um, there's a highway that goes uh, from here to Texas called 287. If you're familiar, God bless you, and I'm sorry. That's, man, that's a, it's a brutal highway. There's nothing around you for a long time. That's not on point. So, so we would go back to Texas for these family vacations, and we would go back, and we would see grandpa and grandma, and, and, and we would get to stay with them for free, and that was great. Well, we would always try at least to make an attempt to have a lake day whenever we went in the spring or the summers. We would always try to go to Lake Ray Roberts, and I remember I was about 10 years old, maybe 11. I was pretty young. Uh, we, we got to have a lake day during vacation, so we went to Lake Ray Roberts on the beachfront there, and there were plenty of beachfronts that you could hang out with your family and things like that. Because it's a man-made lake, it's, it's a really deep area, and so, so like you could get into deep water pretty quick, and it's a big lake, so there's even like kind of a current in it. There's larger waves, and it. it's a really big body of water. There's uh, more danger in that type of water than a swimming pool, so I thought I was a good swimmer. Um, because I could swim in a pool and float on my back, all right? Very accomplished for my age. And my dad tells me this, this day that we're at the lake together. He's like, come out into the water with me. I want to teach you how to tread water. I said, okay, I can do that if I can float. I can swim. I can tread water. It'll be fine. He wanted me to experience what it's like to try to tread water in a larger body of water. Needless to say, it didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. I was, you know, shaking around, trying to sputter around and like get my legs and arms swinging and pumping, trying to just keep my face, my body above the water so that I could continue to breathe. Like I said a moment ago, it didn't go well. And so I didn't know what I was in trouble for, but I knew my dad was trying to waterboard me. And so I, I was like, Dad, I haven't hit my brother in like two weeks. This is a real good streak for me, so I don't understand why you're doing this. Uh, he, w he just wanted me to learn how to tread water so that I would know how to do it. Now, uh, I don't tell you this story because it's like emotionally, physically scarring for me. I don't even know if my dad remembers this story. I, it's Okay, I don't, I don't think that this has affected really the person that I've become. I don't feel scarred by this story. The reason I remember it is because I started studying spiritual growth over the last two weeks in preparation for this sermon. And I think that spiritual growth... Whereas we may think sometimes that as followers of Jesus, spiritual growth is going to feel like climbing a ladder or some stairs, and we're going to like uh, continually ascend closer and closer and closer to Jesus, and I'm going to try this Bible study and go to this thing and do this Bible reading plan on the app, and I'm going to go to this worship service, try this conference. I'm just going to slowly, steadily make my way forward to heaven, when in all actuality, I would be willing to wager that most of our experiences with spiritual growth looks a whole lot more like treading water and swinging and pulling our arms, trying not to go under the water and under the waves. It looks a lot more like that than it does like climbing a ladder or some stairs. 
Spiritual growth is not a simple thing, is it? Amen? Thank you. Okay. I was like, I need some validation here. I wanted to make sure we're on the same page. Spiritual growth can be a difficult thing for us to, to try to attempt as Christians. In fact, for many of us, there's probably guilt associated or disappoint, a disappointment associated with spiritual growth because we have attempted and failed to do something that we were trying to do or maybe tried to, to start a habit of reading the Bible that we didn't really stick with very well. And so disappointment, guilt are absolutely parts of this. There are emotions that we feel. In fact, I would even say that many of us have probably stepped into the water of comparison when it comes to spiritual growth. And we've looked over at this person and said, you know, I'm way further along than they are, and I'm doing this pretty well. We feel good about ourselves. And then we see Sally Mae over there posting on Facebook every other day about a spiritual quote that she heard. And we're like, man, I'm really behind on the game, right? We've stepped into that water of comparison. And that is, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. It's also the thief of spiritual growth. Not one of us is on the same growth, uh, not one of us is on the same path of spiritual growth. And that's what makes it kind of a difficult topic to engage with. But that's what I'd like to preach and teach to you about this morning is spiritual growth and divine fruit. And we'll get to the divine fruit part in just a few moments, but what I'd like to invite you to do is turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. That's where we'll be reading this morning out of 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The words will come up on the screen and I'll read it for us as well. So why don't I pray before I read some out of the scripture this morning? Why don't you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we love and we trust you. We just ask that your word would shape us this morning. Would your word shape who we're becoming and shape who we are right now? Lord, it is in your holy, precious, and matchless name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to read out of 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. The first two verses are an introduction where Peter tells you that it's him, Peter, and that he wants to bless you with his words. And then he says this in verse 3. Jesus' divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And by these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... You will, they will keep you from being useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten his cleansing from his past sins. The letter of 2 Peter is one of the last things that Peter does as far as Christian leadership in his life. In fact, further on in his letter, he'll tell you that he is aware that his death is imminent. And it's true that within a few months to maybe a year after writing this letter, Peter is martyred for his faith, for the very things that he professes to us, for the very things that we just read. He is killed for these things. In fact, he was killed by the Roman Empire. He was martyred for his faith. What tradition teaches us is that he was crucified upside down, which is a pretty metal way to go, but it's what tradition would tell us Peter did. He gave his life for his faith and what he believed. And so, and he knows that his death is coming, is what he tells us later in the letter. And he, even in the face of his death coming, what is on his mind to write to believers? Spiritual growth. The, the care of their souls, growing in the knowledge of our Lord 
Jesus. In fact, Jesus gives one definition for eternal life all throughout Scripture. He says, eternal life is this, to know me and the one who sent me. Spiritual growth is, is in fact, tasting a type of eternal life now. If we're growing in the knowledge of Jesus, it's how we see the kingdom come now. Spiritual growth is how we taste and see that the Lord is good. Spiritual growth is how we become a part of his kingdom coming here. And that's what Peter desires for each and every one of us. And that's what's on his mind as he's writing, even when his death is coming near. So spiritual growth and divine fruit is a largely important thing to Peter. And therefore, it becomes an important thing to us and something that he believed was possible for us. And so we can also believe that it's possible for us. There's this line in verse 4 here in the chapter where Peter ta- is talking about spiritual growth. He's saying that, that Jesus' Spirit has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And then he uses this phrase, and, and, and these promises are given so that we can participate in the, the divine nature. That's how the NIV puts it. I think in our version, the CSB this morning, it said that we could share in divine nature. What, what I like the translation better is that we can participate in the divine nature. And that's the first idea that we'll walk through together this weekend is that spiritual growth is about participating in the divine nature. And that's the beautiful thing is that it's kind of part of our end goal of spiritual growth is to, to reflect divine nature into the world. But it's also the way that we do the spiritual growing is participating in divine nature. And so, and so to, to help us come to a deeper understanding of this, a greater understanding of spiritual growth, we can use theologians of our days to help kind of fill in the blanks for us because the idea of spiritual nature or, or divine nature can kind of feel like a far-off concept. We're going to continue walking through with it this morning. But for the sake of talking about spiritual growth, I want to uh, tell you about this theologian. His name is Dane Ortland, and he writes that spiritual growth is a deepening of who we are. Let me actually read the quote from him. Dane Ortland says that it's not just changing actions. Spiritual growth is not just changing actions, knowing more doctrines, or experiencing a great worship set that gives you the chills. It's all of these things, but it's a deepening beyond these things. What Ortland says is this, implicit in the notion of deepening is the idea that you already have what you need. You already have what you need. Spiritual growth is bringing what you do, what you say, and what you feel into line with who you already are, a child of God, a disciple of Jesus. Spiritual growth is a deepening of who we are, not just an addition. It's not just adding an action or an attribute. It is a deepening of who the Spirit is already leading us to be. If we've accepted Christ into our life, if we've declared our lives in service of Him, if we have chosen the narrow way and the narrow path, we have everything we need to grow spiritually, to deepen. And that's the idea that I think Peter wants us to have right here, is that participating in the divine nature is something that is possible because it's a deepening of who we already are. We've been given part of the divine nature. We have the spirit living within us. We already have part of the divine nature within us. We, we deepen ourselves in that. And that's kind of part of the beautiful thing about spiritual growth is that it is not a solo project. It's a group project. So even here this morning, right now, what we are doing is coming together as a community, dividing the word together, understanding together, learning, <clears throat> excuse me, together what the word has for us, what Jesus would have for us. Even in this moment, we are growing spiritually. 
okay? This is part of it. This is just one element of it. We do it as a community, but even more in kind of in an individual way, you and the Spirit, you guys are, are co-creators. You're project partners in your spiritual growth. You get to work with the Spirit to do it. You're not just handed some Excel spreadsheet that you're supposed to go to your desk and try to figure out yourself. It's better than that. You get to do it in community. We get to do spiritual growth in community and alongside the Spirit. We're not doing this alone. Spiritual growth is a group project towards reflecting this divine nature, participating in this divine nature that Peter talks about. So we now have to ask ourselves, what do we mean when we say divine nature? What does Peter mean when he says that we should participate in the divine nature? There are many ways that we could answer this question. We could start making lists of characteristics and attitudes and all of these things that we could add, and that would be awesome, except this entire book, this entire scripture, this library of 66 books is designed that God would reveal himself to us. So for us to understand the divine nature you got to read it, right? We have to know what he said, how he's revealed himself to us. But there are um, specific passages that, that can be really helpful when it comes to learning about divine nature. I believe that Gen- Genesis 1 through 3 reveals so deeply the character and nature of God as, as a creator and as a, a lover of his creation, as someone who, who cares about the things that he's made with his hands reveals deep things about his nature. In fact, Genesis 1 through 3 has far more to say about God's nature than it does anything else. The story of the Exodus uh, and the people of Israel being saved from slavery in Egypt is a, is a story that reveals deeply the character of God when it comes to justice and redemption and even freedom. The life and ministry of Jesus himself is, is a deep look into the nature of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the letter of, uh, to the Colossians, he says that Jesus was the, is the image of the invisible God, right? If he is the image of the invisible God, then we can look to Jesus and know the characteristics of God. We can look to Jesus and know what God's actions would be because Jesus is God incarnate, right? If he is the image of the invisible God, then we know we can look to him and know what God is like and who he is. There's this... Um, there's this philosophy and paradigm for teaching that we use a lot uh, with, with our family ministries here at the church. And so between the kids' ministry and our preteen ministry and youth ministry that I work pretty closely with, we, we use the idea of attributes over actions. And so we teach students and kids who God is before we really dive into the actions, okay? In order to understand God, I understand that these things are, are connected, that his actions reveal his attributes. I understand that dichotomy. What I mean is this, is that we, can, we, we need to learn who God is before we can actually fully understand why he's done what he's done. And that also helps us in this area of spiritual growth. If we don't know who God is, how could we ever reflect him to the world? How could we ever reflect God's divine nature to the world if we have no idea who he is? If we only know his actions and we don't know him We can't reflect his divine nature into the world because that is one of the end goals of our spiritual growth. It's not that we would just, it's not that we would just become more moral or something like that, but it is also that we would reflect these attributes into the world. I think some of the most helpful scriptures when it comes to talking about divine nature is the one we just read here in 2 Peter and also Galatians chapter 5, very famous verses, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and it's, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control, and against such things there is no law, right? This is a very famous passage of Scripture, but, but these, um, these attitudes and, and these attributes aren't just really cool things that would make us really cool people. 
They aren't just things that can make us nicer people. This, these are lists of attributes of who God is. Our goal is to reflect God into our world, not just a more moral way of living, but, it, but it's through reflecting this, this divine nature that we actually begin to experience the life and life abundant that Jesus told us he came to give in John chapter 10. Because this isn't just about becoming a good person, but it's living life the way we were designed to as images of God, people who reflect God's image into this world. So spiritual growth is about participating in the divine nature. It's about reflecting God's attributes into the world. And let me speak a word into the generation and culture that we live in today. Efficiency is not part of spiritual growth. Efficiency is not a fruit of the Spirit, Okay, in that list we just had up here, efficiency was not one of them. And I think that in our culture, it's a really big deal to be able to do a lot of things in a small amount of time. And that's a really valuable trait and asset and whatever. That is not the picture that we're given for spiritual growth. That's not the picture that we're given for spiritual growth, that it's just going to be like one step, one step, one step. Like, like I said at the beginning, climbing a ladder. It's not just going to be one hand over the other. It is going to be like treading water. It's trying to find a rhythm in a way that we can begin to swim efficiently, right? It's, it's not going to just happen overnight. It takes more time, effort, and energy than that. Spiritual growth is not about earning something. Spiritual growth is not a career move for you. It's not a side hustle that you would just get more blessing at the end of the month if you put in the work now. It's not, it's not about earning something like that. Spiritual growth isn't like a calorie-cutting diet plan where if you would just cut out some of the bad things, you'll have more of the good or something like that. It's not, it's not about those things. Spiritual growth is a deeper process than that. It takes time, effort, energy, all of these things. Spiritual growth, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's tasting and seeing his kingdom come here. And so, so it's not going to happen overnight. It's not about being efficient, but it is about reflecting God into the world. So let's begin to explore that a little bit more. Let's talk about this picture that we're painting of what, what spiritual growth looks like as far as a process goes in our life. If we know that it's a group project designed that we would reflect divine nature into the world, then, then we need to understand how that process is even going to work. What does that look like? And, and I don't think there's like a point A, point B, step one, two, three type process to this. Um, but there is a really good image that's all throughout Scripture for how we can understand it. And it's this. It's that your spiritual growth is like gardening. And I don't know why I wrote your. It should be our. Our spiritual growth is like gardening because I'm not exempt from that. It's like gardening. And maybe, maybe you've never gardened before, um, but, but it's n- not an accident at all that Paul, the Apostle Paul uses this gardening metaphor to talk about the Spirit's work in our life, the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's gardening terminology. Jesus used gardening terminology all the time. He's always talking about vineyards and vineyard workers and, you know, spreading seed on roads and stuff, which I didn't really get for a really long time, and I'm still not sure I totally understand it. But it's not an accident, that these are the images used to talk about the Spirit's work in our heart, life, mind, body, soul, all of who we are. It's not an accident at all. This, this imagery of, of trying to build a garden, and that's your spiritual life, it's this image of you are going to have to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to put your hands in the soil. You're going to have to fertilize that soil. You, you're you're going to want to water the tree. You have to plant seeds. It needs sunlight. It needs all of these other factors that take time effort and energy on our part to put our hands to the plow, so to speak, to put our hands in the dirt, in the dust, and attempt to build a spiritual life, 
to grow something spiritual. And even then, let's, if we're thinking of our spiritual life like a tree, like a fruit tree, the first time fruit grows on a tree is not the best fruit it's ever going to produce. It will take pruning and development even after the tree is already grown for that tree to remain healthy, right? That's a beautiful picture for our spiritual life. Grace and I, we live out on the county. We have a peach tree in our backyard. <clears throat> Excuse me. Actually, our neighbor has a peach tree in their backyard, and it reaches over our fence, okay? And we didn't know that there was a big old peach tree in the backyard um, for the first year, probably, that we lived in this place. In fact, we didn't know that there was a peach tree back there until, my, uh, until we got a dog. Uh, my dog's name is Reba, and she's a golden retriever, and she is every bit of a golden retriever. She's very happy. She's an eternal puppy. And so she's really excited all the time. We didn't know we had a peach tree back there until we, we came home one day, and Reba had this little green, weird, bitter, like firm-looking thing in her mouth that she was chewing on. I thought it was a crab apple. It was really small, right? And so I just took it from her bad dog, you know, throw it away, that type of thing. And, and then a couple more times this happens. And, uh, and then we come home one day, Grace and I do, and, and the green things are a little bit bigger than they normally look, right? And there's like two or three bites taken out of them. And there's like five of them on the couch that Reba has like taken bites out of these things. And that's when we realized that they were peaches. We like smell them like, that's really sweet, tastes really sweet, right? This is a peach. Okay. And that's how we learned that there was a peach tree in our backyard, but we had no idea for quite some time. And, and I don't know exactly why we didn't see the fruit before. Um, it, it could be because the tree was young. It also could be because um, peach trees are known to be inconsistent at times depending on the weather, right? They may not even fruit for a season. They may go every other year for some time. That can happen to these trees. I don't know why it happened that way. I just know that, that it took time uh, for, for us to actually understand that there was a peach tree planted in our neighbor's yard because of my stinking dog who wouldn't stop eating those peaches. And I'm really convinced that's why she's overweight. Um, it's because I just never know when she's eating peaches, but you could plant a peach tree in your backyard today. You'd plant one today, and you wouldn't see fruit on its, on its branches for three to four years, and that's if you were lucky, right? It would take time. It takes seasons, and even then, there are all kinds of factors that you can't control, like the weather. Like, the, the freezes in January affect the peaches in July, and if that's not a good word for your spiritual growth, I don't know what is. The things that are happening today will affect your spiritual growth six months from now, a year from now, the things that are happening in your life, how you're reacting spiritually to them will affect your children's lives, will affect everyone who is around you. I say all this to say that, that growing a tree like this, growing a peach tree, it takes time, effort, energy. You have to put your hands to the plow. It takes real work to do this, prep and planning for the future. And what I want to speak into your life today is that your spiritual growth will take prep and planning. It will take planning for your future. It will take you putting your hands into the soil and getting messy to try to make some fruit grow. But like I said before, this group project, you don't do this alone. You and the Spirit are doing this together. You're co-gardeners in your little garden of spiritual walk. Back to this idea of prep and planning. It's incredible to me that we have goals for everything. Whenever I talk to people about their spiritual lives, we seem to not have goals for anything in the spiritual life. We may have actions that we want to do more of, habits maybe that we want to form, but we don't really have goals in our spiritual life. We have goal weights, goal promotions, goal bottom lines, goal jobs, all of those things. And where are our spiritual ambitions? Maybe you have that. That's amazing. But I'd say a lot of the people that I talk to don't have a spiritual ambition. They're just like, oh, well, I just need to read the Bible more, or I just need to pray more, and not really understanding where we're trying to go with that. Where are you trying to go with that in your spiritual walk? 
I believe that if you don't make goals for yourself, if you don't have a spiritual ambition for, for yourself, you will live in a land of disappointment. You, you will live in a time in your life that is painted with disappointment because you are trying to attempt to do something that you're not actually ever going to get to the end of or complete or, or, or become developed in. In fact, you'll be like, like a lit match, right? You'll, you'll find the Spirit, you'll find the Lord Jesus, right? And you'll just burn out within 15 seconds, maybe because you don't have an actual spiritual goal and you just know that you're supposed to like read your Bible more, pray more, do this, do that, do this, do that. And you begin to approach spiritual growth as this ladder and, and you're gonna try to go to this conference and read this book and you're gonna try to do EHS and Alpha and all these uh, other resources that we have for you and you're gonna do this reading plan and this, that, and the other thing. You're gonna join a life group, maybe even try to lead one and you're gonna expand yourself so far that, that you're gonna forget what you were doing in the first place and you're gonna absolutely burn out and you're gonna end up like the people of Israel. A lot of motion, no progress. You're gonna wander around a desert for 40 years traveling some land that should have taken you 11 days. All motion and no progress. If we don't have a goal, if we don't know where we're headed. And this is something that I know that I've really been learning over the last two, three, maybe four years, is that my spiritual goals aren't just about creating a habit necessarily. It's not about adding an action to my life. Our spiritual goals become more about the type of people that we are becoming. That's what our spiritual goal is about. It's about who are we becoming as individuals. And I think that it took me a long time to parse this out in my mind because I had this understanding of the world that was really compartmentalized. All right, it's, if, it's like I had my thought life over here, emotional life over here, spiritual life over here type thing, and they all had their own little silo and differences. And um, you may not enjoy this illustration, but I really love it. The best way that I have to explain this to you is like a waffle. I had a waffle, and this was my life. And in this compartment, I had random sports knowledge that no one needed to know about, but I knew about. In this little compartment, I had my spiritual life where I knew uh, certain Bible verses and knew Bible stories and things like that. And in this compartment, I had that one time where my dad tried to drown me in Lake Ray Roberts. And in this compartment, I had like, you know, a bunch of Star Wars knowledge that many of you would probably be impressed that I know so much about. And then, you know, like each little compartment would be things that I would just kind of have access to in my mind. You know, over here is emotional life. Over here is, you know, whatever situation. And then it would be, I would go to a Bible study or come to church and be like, oh, time to go to my, my, my compartment uh, and find the spiritual side of Eli to present to the world real quick. It turns out that as we approach life like that, spiritual growth will feel impossible because spiritual growth is about all of who you are becoming. And for a lack of a better way to say this to you, your spiritual growth is the whole waffle. We grow, we grow spiritually as all of who we are. We are holistic people. We are mind, body, spirit, soul. We, we, we have all that. We exist as one creature, right? You, you, I, I, there's this phrase and there's this saying that I don't know that I fully agree with. I know that it's brought me comfort in times, especially in, in the passing of somebody. And it's the idea that you are a soul, but you have a body. You are a soul, but you have a body. And in our mind, I know that it brought me comfort because the idea there was that whoever I knew that had passed was no longer in the body, but they were with Jesus because they were a soul, right? And, and I think that's a helpful uh, way to, to deal with some grief and, and, and deal in that sense. However, I think that sometimes we can apply that same logic to, to our lives as a whole, and, and we end up just trying to grow spiritually, and we can end up having a really good thought life. We know a lot of scripture. We know a lot of things, and, and Jesus is really involved in our thought life, but we are emotional, our emotional build and emotional life has gone off the rails, and it's way over here, and it's because the, the thought life was the only thing that was invaded by the Spirit. 
and the thought life was the only thing that, that was experiencing spiritual growth and our emotions were over here and our physical was over here and we were just creating these terrible habits in other areas of our lives. I don't want that for any of us. We grow as holistic people, mind, body, spirit. So all of who you are grows spiritually. It's not just one piece of you. It's not just growing in a head knowledge. It's growing in a heart knowledge, a relationship with Christ. That's how we begin to reflect the divine nature into the world. And that process looks a whole lot like planting some seeds, watering the ground, and getting our hands dirty. That's the idea. That's the goal of how we grow spiritually is that we participate in the divine nature in order that we would grow in our understanding of it. Does that make sense? That's how we're built as human beings, as holistic beings and holistic creatures. If our goals, our spiritual goals are about forming personhood and about reflecting God's image into the world and and deepening who we are in the spirit, then let's contextualize for a moment what that means for us as a community of Jesus followers. See, we set spiritual goals in the Christian walk for more than just ourselves. You growing as a Christian is about more than just you becoming more moral or something like that. It's about more than just your experience walking in this world. See, we're also discipled for the sake of of others. We're discipled for the sake of others. Our goals affect the people around us. I'm going to turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to read verses 10 and 11 for us, and, and this, is, this will be our closing idea together. But this is what it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Those are the words that we're going to hang out in for a few minutes after this. Confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. And in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. See, what Peter does in this passage right here is that he ties the idea of election and calling back to this idea that we read about with the list of supplement your faith with goodness and, your, and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with, with brotherly love and kindness and these things that he kind of has a list of, of attributes that we're trying to take on. He ties the idea of election and calling into that conversation about spiritual growth. Now, Uh, I'd like to hang out with the word election for a few moments. And here's the final idea that we'll walk through is that we are elected to be a blessing. We're elected to be a blessing. Now, this word uh, election is is a really spiritual word, and it's one that's dealt with a lot uh, in in Christian circles. Maybe you've heard an argument about election before. uh, Sorry, a discussion. We don't argue in church. Maybe you've heard a discussion about election, and maybe you've heard um, of some of the ideas behind um, uh, the, the idea of God's elect um, or, or uh, the election of the saints, or maybe you've heard arguments between Calvinism and Arminianism and, and these uh, views of Scripture and these views of the Christian walk, and, and I, it does, I don't really care where you stand on that, but I do think that that is simply one layer of the onion when we come to the word election. Okay? And maybe you've heard of none of those things, that's okay. The idea of election is something that, that is brought about a lot in circles when it comes to salvation. And the word election means to be chosen, right? It's to be chosen. And so when we talk about God's elect, the idea is God's chosen. So has God chosen some people to be saved and some people not? And how much of that is him choosing or us choosing? And there's a whole big debate about that, and, and we can talk about it another time. But, but the idea of election, of being chosen by God, is something that is from the first page of our Bible and is so much more than just that one conversation. So let's peel some layers back. The idea of election of being chosen by God to be a blessing is a theme throughout Scripture, and that's why it's not an accident at all that Peter has it here 
in his letter. And so in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, Adam, Adam, this is the Hebrew word for mankind. Adam is chosen to be a blessing. He's elected to be a blessing, and he is to rule and reign in the garden, right? He's to rule and reign and, and bring goodness to the good creation that God has given and wants to be partners in running, right? He offers that to Adam, and Adam does that. He's chosen to be a blessing. Now, we're aware of the story that doesn't go super well for him. A few generations later, we have Noah. Noah is elected to be a blessing. He is chosen out of the world that is descended into violence and destruction and and evil. And Noah and his family are elected to be a blessing. They're chosen to to come out of the world and to continue this project that God wants to have with his good world, right? A few generations later, you have the man Abram who who comes into contact, contact with God in the land of Ur. And he listens to God and goes where God tells him to go and believes in God and that is credited to him as righteousness. And God and Abram uh, enter into these, what we would call covenants. They're special promises that God gives to Abram and then actually changes his name to Abraham. And what he says to Abraham, what God says to Abraham is that you will become a great nation and then uh, through you, through your nation, all nations would be blessed, right? Abraham was chosen. He was elected to be a blessing. His son, Isaac, elected to be a blessing. Jacob, elected to be a blessing. Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, elected to be a blessing, has a really difficult time, is sold into slavery by his brothers, and then through a bunch of miraculous, beautiful events that's a really amazing story, he comes into power in Egypt and is able to save his entire family. Moses, four or five hundred years later, is elected to be a blessing. The Israelite people who were saved by Joseph in Egypt expand. They, they, they multiply and, and they become fruitful in the land and they become slaves of the Egyptians. And Moses is chosen by God to lead them out of that, to be redeemed out of slavery. Moses is elected to be a blessing. He's designed to lead them towards new and fresh promises, a promised land, a land of blessing. He doesn't get to do that. There's another one who's chosen, elected to be a blessing, Joshua, who who becomes the leader of the Israelites and leads them into the promised land and divides out the inheritance and leads them into that blessing. Few hundred, maybe a thousand or more, can't remember exactly the timeline here, to Jesus Jesus is elected to be a blessing. In fact, what Revelation tells us is that before the foundation of the world, he was chosen as the lamb who would be slain for you and for me. Elected to be a blessing. And don't miss this. The church is elected to be a blessing. We're chosen to be God's machine and vehicle in the world to extend blessing. We're chosen to be a blessing to the people that are in the rows right next to you. You're chosen to be a blessing to the people who you work with. You're chosen to be a blessing to the people you run into who might be walking around our parking lot who have nothing. You are elected to be a blessing. And it's as we reflect this, these divine pieces of God, these divine attitudes of God into the world, that's, the, that's a blessing. It's through us that others can taste and see that God is good. To bring it back to our our fruit trees, okay, let's say that you're trying to grow a kindness tree in your yard, and you found the perfect spot, gets a lot of sun, you water it, you take care of the soil, you prune it, you take care of it, and the first time that kindness fruit, like, really, really blossoms and comes, it's a little bit sour because you're still working on kindness, and so you prune it some more, and you give it two or three more seasons, in and out of season, and you take care of it, and you get to this point where you have grown some really amazing kindness fruit, and it is beautiful, it's perfect, I'm kind of like imagining like a banana, but 
I don't know how you would imagine kindness fruit is supposed to look, um, but it's, let's say it's like the perfect type of fruit that you would want to throw into your smoothie in the morning, okay? It looks like that. It's fresh. It's amazing. What are you supposed to do with that fruit? What the Spirit would lead us to do is we grab a basket from the kitchen table, we pull the fruit off the tree, we fill the basket, and we bring it to family dinner. You harvest your fruit, and then you begin to share it with others. The kindness that you have cultivated in your life is for other people. It's not just for you. In fact, Grace and I were trying to clean our yard a few weeks ago from the peach tree that I told you about. It had, like, you know, harvested, and now it's a really big peach tree. It's not small anymore. And so, like, there were a bunch of peaches on the ground and stuff. And you know what happened is many of them had, like, fallen to the ground, and somehow Reba didn't get to them. Don't know how. Uh, but they were like, you know, beaten down by the sun and, and rained on and everything. And they like melted and were gross and they had begun to just rot and they smelled terrible. What I don't want for you is that your kindness fruit would fall off the tree and begin to rot under it. And just go without use. It's like what Peter says. Remember that these things that you're growing in, this fruit that you're producing, keep you a fruitful member of God's community. But the beautiful thing about that is that as we begin to fill our baskets and bring it to family dinner, we begin to share our kindness with others. So as you are sharing your kindness fruit with someone else, they are sharing theirs with you. As you are sharing the fruit of your love, they are sharing the fruit of their love with you. There is someone who needs your fruit. There are kids 50 feet away from you in this building who need the fruit of your patience. There are kids in this room who need the fruit of your patience. There are students that I work with who need the fruit of your wisdom. Come share your fruit with the community. Your fruit isn't just for you. So let me ask you, would you share your fruit with us? With us, not me, with us. Would you share your fruit and allow other people to taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you cultivate some of that fruit in your life? Maybe it's time you planted some seeds. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?